Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagen. We are at the brink of a momentous, historic event. As I stand here with the congressman from Maryland, Jamie Raskin, who we have on the program this week, we're actually taping one week from the moment when the hearings for the select committee to investigate the January 6th attacks on the United States Capitol will begin in prime time. And we're going to finally see what uh, this committee has been finding out from over 1,000 interviews, 125,000 records. And uh, so today I welcome, thank you very much for being here, Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland. Well, I'm delighted to be with you guys, and I've been looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, we've been trying to get you, and we finally have you, and I'm very, very thrilled uh, that you're here today. Thank you so much. Um, right off the top, let me ask you, this is going to be in prime time. That's a big deal. It's not during the day when people are working. This is in the evening when people can watch television at their leisure and really take it in, what it is you guys are going to be presenting to the public. Are we going to be seeing it on network TV? Are they going to preempt regular programming to show some of this? Or where are we going to see it? Um, well, I don't know if all of those decisions have been finally made by the networks, um, but I, I do know that you know we did our our best to get to get them scheduled in such a way that they wouldn't conflict with other big things that we knew wouldn't be moved, like the NBA finals and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. So um, I imagine that it, you know people will be able to watch them in real time. Uh, but also, of course, they will be available for people who can't see them at that time. And, um, you know, right. I'm hoping we'll have a package of them ready and you can binge watch it on the weekend if you miss it during the week. You know? Right. Well, what we are hoping to finally find out is more about what the committee has already described so much in the in the lead up to this. This has been many, many months. You guys have interviewed so many people. Some of it has leaked out. Some of you of it you have discussed in public, but the, you know, the uh, operative words here are a criminal conspiracy. We hear this expression a lot. You've said uh, previously in other interviews that there was a premeditated act to attack the Capitol, that the coup was premeditated, and that it emanated from the top, from Donald Trump himself. Can you describe what, in this case, a criminal conspiracy is? What does it mean that there was a criminal conspiracy on January 6th? Well, let me preface it by saying that we, of course, are not uh, a group of criminal prosecutors or investigators. The, the role of the January 6th Select Committee on the January you know, 6th attacks is to deliver a report to the American people and the Congress about what happened and what were the causes behind it and what we need to do to fortify our institutions going forward. Um, and that, of course, is up to the Department of Justice. But having said that, I mean, a conspiracy is an agreement uh, between two or more people to commit an unlawful action uh, or a lawful action by criminal means. So it's basically an agreement to commit a crime plus in most jurisdictions, it would be one overt forward act to advance the purpose of the conspiracy. But look, the, the key thing to understand from the standpoint of common sense, which I think is the standard of proof that people should bring to these uh, hearings, is whether or not people think these events that took place were totally spontaneous 
whether they were just an overflow of emotion on January 6th, or whether there was indeed a premeditated plan to try to overthrow Joe Biden's majority in the Electoral College and uh, use violent force to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power and block the counting of Electoral College votes for the first time in American history. And uh, I've got no doubt that reasonable-minded people are going to look at this and say this was an organized hit on American democracy. Um, and after several other efforts to overthrow Joe Biden's majority in Electoral College and nullify the result in the election failed, then they moved finally to try to get uh, Vice President Mike Pence to step outside of his constitutional role and use unilateral, unprecedented, extra-constitutional means to uh, essentially nullify the results of the election and get the whole thing kicked into the House of Representatives for a so-called contingent election, where we'd be voting not according to one member, one vote, but one state, one vote. And um, Trump and the coup plotters understood that there were 27 state delegations that were controlled by Republicans, 22 in the hands of the Democrats, and one state, Pennsylvania, was split down the middle, 9-9, so it would have been to this, off to the side. So even if they had lost the uh, vote of the at-large representative from Wyoming, uh, Ms. Cheney, uh, as I suspect they would have, although I don't know that to be the case, um, it still would have been 26 to 22 or 26 to 23. Um, and they would have declared the uh, election over. They would have said that Donald Trump was going to continue to be president if he had followed the advice of his disgraced former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, he would have uh, invoked the Insurrection Act, declared martial law, and essentially called in the National Guard to put down all of the insurrectionary violent chaos he had unleashed against us. So that's one potential way it could have gone. There were a number of things that could have happened. But I'm convinced that uh, Donald Trump went to sleep on um, the 5th of January thinking that he was going to be president for another four years. So much of this, we've heard this all along in my own research and reporting on it, is people talk about Trump's state of mind, that in order to create you know, a legal case, which I know you're not necessarily in the business of doing, but there could potentially be one out of the Justice Department. Uh, you know, we heard Congressman Kevin McCarthy of California in these recorded phone calls saying that Trump accepted some responsibility for the events. But that state of mind question, it, it looms large uh, for people who are paying attention to the legal idea that Trump himself might be made liable for this. Why isn't Donald Trump being called before this committee? Or has he? And why was it, you know, Benny Thompson saying it was not our expectation that you will call Trump? And, and if, if not, why not? Well, I, I of course, um, tried to call Donald Trump um, as a witness in his impeachment trial. Um, right. And he, of course, had been impeached by the House of Representatives for inciting violent insurrection against the union. Um, and we ended up also in the Senate with a 57 to 43 vote affirming what the House had said. That was 10 votes short of a conviction in the Senate, which requires two thirds. But we did have uh, 
resounding bipartisan, bicameral majorities, establishing as a matter of legislative fact that it happened. But of course, Trump um, took less time to refuse my letter and to refuse my invitation and to say he would not testify than it took him to respond on January 6th. And so, you know, we understand that he won't testify. He wouldn't testify. His lawyers won't allow him to testify because they understand that he will either perjure himself or implicate himself in all kinds of crimes. Um, and, you know, we didn't want to create the opportunity for, you know, a typical Donald Trump circus show. Um, there are hundreds and right. hundreds of people willing to tell us the truth who came and testified before our committee. The overwhelming majority of people participated and cooperated actively with the committee. Of course, the closer you get to Donald Trump, the more people were uh, willing to defy the authority of Congress and to essentially, you know, give the finger to the rule of law. And that was at Trump's direction. He was trying to thwart us every way possible. Um, so Steve Bannon didn't cooperate and Dan Scavino didn't cooperate and Peter Navarro and a lot of these people have been uh, held in contempt. Um, but, uh, you know, we're convinced that uh, we know the overwhelming amount of what took place in a material sense um, leading up to January 6th and on January 6th, even without his participation. Right. It was reported today that J. Michael Lettig, a former federal judge, lawyer who advised Vice President Mike Pence is expected to testify. What's the significance of that? Well, the, uh, I'm not actually working on that particular hearing, so I, I couldn't confirm that or deny it or anything, so I don't know. But Judge Ludig, um, according to numerous published reports now, thought that all of the uh, John Eastman memo claims, the so-called Green Bay sweep, um, yes. were utterly absurd. Uh, he said they were absurd, and we're talking about an extremely conservative judge uh, who's as dyed in the wool a hardcore Republican as you can imagine. Uh, but he uh, categorically rejected what John Eastman was saying. He took the position that the vice president had no such authority to step outside of his constitutional role and unilaterally reject the Electoral College votes of Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, New Mexico, in order to uh, destroy Joe Biden's Electoral College majority. He understood that this was a fundamental assault on the U.S. Constitution and um, an effort to negate the votes of tens of millions of Americans. So uh, I, I hope my colleagues working on that particular hearing uh, have indeed been able to secure his participation as a, as a witness, because I think it's a very powerful statement about what all of the lawyers of, you know, any note and substance were saying at that point. Right. And I want to just pan back for our listeners and for people that are going to see these hearings. They want to understand what it is you guys are investigating. There's so many moving parts to this, right? This investigation, uh, there was a lead lawyer named Tim Hafey. There were five teams of investigators who investigate different lines of inquiry. Just the quick shorthand, pressure on the Justice Department by the Trump White House, pressure on state officials to create, you know, alternate slates of electors to, you know, throw out essentially the votes of the states, outside groups who were organized to attack the Capitol, um, pressure on the vice president to decertify 
the election and Trump himself and in you know what ways was he orchestrating any of this or connected to it right you've been working on this since you were involved the impeachment manager during the second impeachment you were so involved in this you know you were there tell me what for you has been the single most surprising discovery in this investigation to you the most significant surprising discovery well it's hard to to choose joe um if you don't mind my throwing out several different things that have really been eye-openers for me. Sure. One was um, the role that money played and the role of uh, a financial motive behind all these events to keep the money pouring in. Mm. That was an eye-opener for me. It was dramatic to see the way that the inside political coup against Biden's majority electoral college interacted with the insurrectionary mob violence and how uh, people at the very top of the Republican hierarchy were always at most one or two steps away from uh, violent hooligans and street fascists. And there are people yeah. uh, like Roger Stone who uh, were clearly in the nexus between the, the power elite and uh, the street fighters. That's something that I think the public will find. Well, right. And, and, and does this relate to these reports we're seeing that members of Congress maybe have been giving tours to some of the members of these side groups or organizers, almost as if they were like casing the joint before some sort of event? Well, th that's actually something that hadn't surprised me because we had colleagues who were reporting that immediately after January 6th. And um, our colleague, Mikey Sherrill, who has a, uh, an extensive military background and also was a prosecutor, recorded that publicly and said that she saw uh, Republican members who were giving tours. So, yeah, I was not surprised when the evidence of that came out in the course of this right. investigation. Well, one thing I want to make a distinction here. You guys are not in the position of prosecuting anybody. You're investigators. You can create a referral to the Justice Department. We've heard about that. So really, you, you want to tell as clear and concise a story to the American public about what you know and how you think it went down. Now, over here, separate from that, is a legal case, right? We don't know if one will be brought against the higher levels of the GOP and Trump, but they, it could. But you yourself are a lawyer. You've been deeply involved in all of this for so long. In your legal opinion, not just the public opinion of the story, what would constitute a smoking gun in terms of prosecuting the former president? Ah, well... Um as I observe the Department of Justice's investigation and prosecution of hundreds of people, I have the sense that they are working at like a classic mob investigation and mob prosecution where you start with the foot soldiers and you work your way up. And that's why um, the original charges brought were for things like assault on a federal officer. And there were hundreds and hundreds of such assaults. 150 of our officers suffered 
from serious injuries and wounds and broken jaws and necks and noses and lost fingers, heart attacks, strokes, you know. So there, a lot of the violent stuff was charged uh, at the beginning. Similarly, you know, the trespass, the interference with a federal proceeding, uh, destruction of federal property, those kinds of offenses. But then we began to see seditious conspiracy charges being brought and people pleading guilty to seditious conspiracy, which means conspiracy to overthrow the government. And we've had multiple people already plead guilty to that uh, because the evidence against them was so overwhelming. So they obviously thought they were doing better with a, a plea bargain than going to court. So, you know, when you talk about, you know, smoking guns, obviously, uh, the best is to have eyewitness testimony or written documentation. You know, I should say that, you know, that mob bosses generally don't write things down. Uh, they prefer to proceed with a wink and a nod or a whispered conversation. They often create buffers between themselves and the criminal actions that they're setting into motion. Um, and so it's not always the easiest thing to find a smoking gun in that sense. And, you know, you don't need a smoking gun because, you know, every day in the courtrooms of America at the state level and the federal level, people are convicted of crimes based on circumstantial evidence. That is evidence of the circumstances that lead people to lead juries to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that, you know, this mob boss ordered this bank robbery or this murder hit or what have you. Circumstantial evidence is evidence. And it would be very tough to make cases against mob bosses uh, without circumstantial evidence. So the real issue, I would say, for prosecutors looking at this, again, which is not our job, but the real issue um, is whether there is sufficiently overwhelming circumstantial evidence that um, some of the key players can be tied to particular crimes. I know it's maddening to people out there that uh, Donald Trump seems to yeah. be able to slip away from everything that he has been credibly accused of, from sexual assault and rape to uh, bank fraud, uh, real estate fraud, uh, tax fraud, you name it. But, you know, th th I mean, money can buy you a lot in this society. And one of the things that can buy you is a lot of lawyers who can sign off on stuff for you and create uh, these buffer zones between you and actions that would get other people prosecuted and convicted. Right. Well, you're, you've, you've hit you – know, the reason I asked about a smoking gun, I asked that out of a certain level of anxiety on your behalf. <laughs> you know, Trump has been twice impeached and in both cases he escaped removal from office. He escaped censure. Investigation into his finances are collapsing. The Mueller report didn't touch him. And every time it not only did he escape, it emboldened him. It strengthened his hand. And now we're at the brink of yet another one, right? And people are skeptical. You know, everybody I talk to is skeptical. I did a poll, you know, straw poll of the people on the staff of Vanity Fair and the Hive. None of them think that Trump is going to come to justice. But you've said he's going to get his comeuppance. You've said that. And so I'm asking you also now, I mean, I don't know if you know Merrick Garland or his Justice Department or the people in his Justice Department, but you as a lawyer, if you were head of the Justice Department today, would you, could you prosecute Donald Trump for crimes against the United States of America based on what you know? 
Um, I mean, I can't really answer that question because the information that I have is very different from whatever information is that the actual criminal prosecutors have. And so I just don't know that. I will tell you, I did prosecute Donald Trump for a constitutional crime, which is at least as grave, if not graver, than some of the things he could be charged for, charged with, such as um, conspiracy to interfere with the federal proceeding. Or, I mean, I would say it's about at the same level as seditious conspiracy. Um, and again, you know, there have been four presidential impeachments in our history. Uh, Andrew Johnson, after the Civil War, Bill Clinton for doing you know what, uh, Donald Trump one and Donald Trump two. And we got the most sweeping bipartisan vote in American history in the Senate uh, to convict, 57 to 43, which uh, is certainly a dramatic majority and margin, but it's not the two thirds that's required to convict. So he, he beat the constitutional spread and again, um, eluded you know, the ultimate grasp of the law. But uh, I think he will get his comeuppance because in a democratic society, the harshest punishment and consequence is to live in infamy and shame among your uh, fellow countrymen and women. And uh, I believe that the evidence is so overwhelming of his central role in these events um, that everybody will understand. He simply refused to accept the results of the 2020 presidential election. He was trying to prepare his followers to reject those results. You know, he ran around saying the only way we can lose this election uh, is uh, if it's stolen from us. It's the only way we can lose, um, you know, is if it's uh, fixed. Um, and then he proceeded after he lost the election by more than 7 million votes in 306 to 232 in the Electoral College to try to discredit and overthrow their, those results by any means necessary, including getting the legislatures to change their minds, going to court, which is why we have more than 60 federal and state court judgments and decisions repudiating every claim of electoral fraud and corruption. Uh, but he also tried to intimidate election officials like Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in Georgia. He uh, entertained the thought of uh, seizing election machinery across the country and having the military rerun the election, uh, which the Department of Home, Homeland Security and the Department of Defense and the Attorney General all refused to do. Um, and then finally, uh, they decided to mobilize that extraordinary and coercive campaign against Mike Pence to try to force him to reject electoral college votes and then to uh, incite a violent insurrection, um, which ended up driving Congress out of um, the House and Senate chambers and uh, interrupting the peaceful transfer of power. So he showed that he meant business. There was nothing accidental or improvisational or uh, spontaneous about what took place. It was an organized hit against the election. So this takes us back to the, my original, first of all, at the top of what you just said, that he might live in shame and infamy. Well, this is a man that has never experienced shame and considers infamy like a plus. And I guess the next 
possible outcome. I know that one of the outcomes for the investigation and for the committee is that the laws may change so that this couldn't happen again. That would be positive. But another aspect of this is that later this year, you know, we're looking at a situation where the GOP could very well retake Congress. Trump is preparing to run again. Dems do not seem to be in a position of strength. Do you think that this evidence and the testimony that we're going to hear over eight different primetime evenings is going to move the political needle in any way? Well, you know, we have an obligation under House Resolution 503 to make specific recommendations about what we need to do to prevent coups and insurrections and political instability going forward. And that's a solemn responsibility that we're taking very seriously. And that's a message we're going to send to the American people. And that's not uh, a partisan duty. Um, That obviously cuts across all partisan lines because anybody could theoretically try to wage a violent insurrection uh, to block the peaceful transfer of power. Anybody could uh, try to bypass the constitutional order and decree himself or herself president. So what we're talking about... um, restoring basic norms to the electoral process, but we're also talking about protecting the right to vote and protecting the integrity of our elections against election subversion by partisan actors. Um, So we're basically trying to uh, fortify ourselves against the propaganda and ideology and mechanics of a big lie. Someone who basically says, I've won, even though they've lost, and then tries to overthrow our entire constitutional order. Like, that's what we've got to deal with. Uh, The internet is a powerful tool, and uh, it's obvious that tens of millions of people can be um, convinced of utter falsehoods and conspiracy theories and political propaganda. So we need to figure out a way to strengthen the basic foundations of democracy. So that's you know, that that's really our purpose and our goal here. I know a lot of people would like to see Donald Trump in prison for the rest of his life. But from the standpoint of the committee, that's quite beside the point, because our goal is to strengthen and fortify the democratic constitutional order. I hear you. But back to the thing about him being in prison. Yes. Now, listen, I just want to ask you, Putting aside the committee thing for a moment, ask you, Jamie Raskin, you were so passionate during the impeachment when you were the impeachment manager. It was so your your speeches about the importance of justice for these actions uh, were very moving to me. In fact, we had your your colleagues on this program to talk about some of that, too. But, um, you know, but I want to just ask you. You're, you're also a politician and you're a realist, right? You follow the money. You know how the world works. Based on the reality on the ground, do you think Donald Trump is ever going to face justice for his actions? I'm sure you get asked this in airports all over the country. But, <laughs> but tr- really, truly, in your heart of hearts, do you think that he's going to face actual justice? Not shame, justice. Well, um, If if I could ask you one preliminary question, what do you mean by justice? Uh, You know, it's a, I mean, it's a profound question. I know that 
people, all of us feel injustice in a really deep way. And everywhere I yeah. go, I have people approach me who do, do feel deeply aggrieved about the seeming impunity of Donald Trump and um, his coterie of lieutenants and advisors. Um, and uh, people have a profound sense of indignation about that. I, I know that. Um, but the wheels of justice turn far more slowly than the wheels of injustice do. Tell me about it. <laughs> and, and it's infuriating to people. I understand that. Uh, but the reason I think he will get his comeuppance is because uh, I've got to believe that just as uh, virtue in the end is its own reward, that vice and criminality condemn people to a life of ultimate misery. Well, when you say criminality, that's justice. I mean, for the crimes to be recognized and for the person who commits the crimes to incur some sort of punishment. That's what I mean by do we think Donald Trump will incur the punishment for the crime of trying to overthrow the United States government through, you know, I mean, it's a huge thing. Well, look, I mean, I'll come back to your question finally. I'll see if I can figure out a good way to answer that. But I will tell you that it's really important for us not to water down our own sense of legality and justice to that of Donald Trump. The 99.9% .9 repeating of Americans would consider it an absolute shame and stigma to have been impeached twice by the United States House of Representatives um, and to have their name dragged through the mud by a dozen different women who say that they sexually harassed or assaulted them. And most people would consider it just disgraceful um, to have it go public by your own lawyer that you engaged in payoffs of tens of thousands of dollars to your former mistresses. And on and on, I mean, the violations of the Emoluments Clause and so on. But I, I agree. I mean, it's an extraordinary situation because, um, you know, we don't want the exposure of criminality to be the end of the story. We want to see people pay the public consequences the way that so many people do for doing things like, you know, selling marijuana, um, which is now a legal act in a lot of states, but they're people who've gone sure. to prison for it. You know, uh, what's maddening and infuriating people is the idea that just because you're born wealthy and you got your dad's money and your dad's lawyers at your disposal, that you can insulate yourself from the consequences of your actions. I get that. Um, so I, I would say because he's essentially a one-man crime wave and there are so many criminal, like unresolved criminal actions and potential cases out there, um, I find it hard to believe that he would be able to escape all of them. Yeah. So if I were a betting man, I would bet that um, it, it could be in Georgia because of the shakedown uh, against Raffensperger. Right. It could be in New York over uh, the various criminal actions, or it could be, you know, one of the U.S. attorneys or the Department of Justice for what happened here. But but I do want to emphasize that uh, it's not just our institutional function, but I also think in a deep constitutional sense, the survival of our institutions so dwarfs how Donald Trump spends his final years or months that we've got to keep 
our eyes on the prize, which is making sure that American constitutional democracy survives Trumpism. I know we will survive Donald Trump, you know, who is utterly narcissistic and consumed with money making and just doing his own thing. Um, but can we survive Trumpism, which is this new authoritarian political tendency, which just wants to make the government into a money-making operation for whoever gets into office and their family and their friends and their corporations and then wage a war against the constitutional order. That is really the heart of our enterprise. That's what we're doing. We want to make sure that American constitutional democracy survives and flourishes and grows in the future. Well, let me posit something to you. Do you know Merrick Garland? Merrick Garland is a constituent of mine. I, I know him in that sense, but I, I've never worked with him. Um, yeah, you don't know the character of the man necessarily, other than just he he's done well, you know, in his career. But um, because here's what I'm talking about with the you know the earlier we talked about the impeachments and the various things that have not touched Donald Trump, other than to potentially shame him. And that what, what people worry about and why I come back to this idea of justice, real justice, shackles on the, on the ankles kind of justice, is that people worry that every time that he survives one of these inquiries, no matter how much awful, disgusting, destructive information comes out about him, if he survives it, okay, then it just strengthens his hand. And then you get these Republicans coming back into Congress, and then they're going to start their own investigation. It's a Hunter Biden. They're going to try to impeach Joe Biden himself, any number of horrible things are happening. And people want to know that there's going to be a line in the sand that, that will be drawn by Democrats. They're waiting for the Democrats to, like, you know, get a spine and, and fight. Well, we are fighting. I'm sorry, but I'm just, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not just Democrats. So there are also Republicans who are constitutional patriots um, along with and the I, Democrats. I acknowledge that with Liz, Liz Cheney of Wyoming and, and Adam Kinzinger. Adam Kinzinger. And, you know, there were 10 Republicans who voted to impeach and seven Republicans right. in the Senate who voted to convict. So um, there are strong Democrats and strong Republicans who are fighting to defend our constitutional order every single day. Uh, but one of the things that Donald Trump tried to wreck, and in some ways did wreck, was the traditional uh, respect that the political branches have for the independence of the law enforcement function. You know, I mean, people used to understand how deranged it is for a president to tell an attorney general, prosecute those people, but don't prosecute those people, and to be constantly hector hectoring and heckling uh, the Attorney General of the United States. But we got conditioned to that, like, you know, the, the frog in the pot of boiling water. I mean, so then we get to a point where President Biden comes in and he says, well, I'm going to let the Department of Justice do their job. And the Democratic members of Congress saying, well, we're going to let Attorney General Garland do his job. And everybody says, no, don't do that. Go and fight. Well, uh, yeah, we're fighting for the truth. That's exactly what our committees about fighting to determine exactly what happened and tell the country about it. But it's not our role to be lobbying the attorney general or dictating to the attorney general if we have I evidence. Get that. Of, you no, know, I, I understand. I'm just. No, but I, I don't know if the public I understands wanna... that anymore because Donald Trump ruined people's sense that 
we respect the independence of law enforcement. I mean, you know, Merrick Garland is nobody's fool. He was the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit. He was about to be on the Supreme Court until the Republicans illegitimately blocked him from it. But I think he understands the job that he needs to do. And I, you know, I just want to give him the deference and the space to do his job. And I don't think I could have any effect on it anyway, even if I decided I wanted to wake up and just be blasting him every day. But I, I don't right. think that that's the proper function of people in the legislative branch or the executive branch. Yeah. Well, it just seems that the people who are defending the institutions have a political deficit. That's what's so infuriating about the whole thing is like you find yourself in a defensive crouch trying to protect you know, these institutions while this other party is rogue just totally rogue, any, any means necessary, zero-sum game. I mean, that's why people, I mean, I, I'm frustrated and I don't want to have to like bend all of the old institutions to, you know, make it better for Democrats necessarily, but some people are looking at why don't you take away the, the filibuster and run the table and get what you need and get what you want and push back on this. Well, we will. If we get three new senators, we will absolutely carve out an exception to the filibuster immediately for voting rights legislation. I mean, the filibuster is not in the Constitution. It's not in federal law. It's a rule of the Senate. And there are more than 100 exceptions to it right now, like the Trade Adjustment Act and budget reconciliation and judicial nomination. So the, the very least we can do is carve out an exception for voting rights and carve out an exception for reproductive freedom so we can pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which we've already passed in the House. But I agree with you. It's infuriating that we have people who are trying to tear down our entire constitutional system as we know it and have no respect for the rule of law. And we fight back with everything we've got, but respecting the rule of law. But the alternative to that is going to be something like civil war. So we are standing up for the constitutional order. I agree with you there. The personal bargain I've made as one of 535 members of Congress is I will not violate other people's rights. I will not violate the rule of law because that's what we're fighting to defend. But in a rhetorical sense, in terms of the way I will mix it up with Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates or Lauren Boebert, I will be absolutely unrestrained in terms of talking about them siding with Vladimir Putin's bloody fascist imperialist invasion of Ukraine, and they're turning uh, a blind eye to the massacre of children there or the massacre of children in America by refusing to do anything about gun violence. I will be absolutely uninhibited about that. And I will go out and I will organize to uh, build the huge democratic majorities that exist in the country to defeat them because we've got to give people hope. But, uh, you know, I, my reading of history is just it's way too easy for people who tear down the constitutional order to allow that kind of poison to spread across the political system. And I think we just can't allow it. As frustrating as it is to us that we are always fighting within the rules of law, whereas they are willing to violate everybody else's rights and tear yeah. everything down. And I, I have to imagine that this will be at least a theme throughout these hearings on some level, you know, that this is unacceptable political expression. <laughs> um, even though we still have like, you know, hundreds of members of Congress who are involved. I mean, that's the mind blowing thing about it. I mean, don't you think the people that voted not to certify the election? I mean, they are 
through implication after the fact, by the way, they voted. Well, <laughs> you know, these- here, here's the thing. I mean, had there been no violence and had there been no effort to illegitimately coerce Mike Pence and they had just voted as they did, uh, they lost and they would have lost um, both in the House and in the Senate. But it was the mobilization of all of these illegitimate means uh, against the vice president, against the House, against the Senate, uh, the levying of a, you know, a mob to over, overrun us that uh, threatened to destroy the presidential election and overturn the constitutional order. Yeah. Um, so, uh, which is not in any sense a, a defense of the electoral college. Uh, because I think that using lawful and constitutional means, we need to replace the Electoral College, which is profoundly undemocratic, yeah. which marginalizes the vast majority of the American people in the general election, and which now has proven itself to be a positive danger to us uh, because uh, it's such an antiquated and obsolescent system that if you have a bad faith strategic actor like Donald Trump, he can exploit all of the nooks and crannies within the Electoral College um, to his own ends. And, you know, we saw him try to uh, move the state legislatures to nullify the popular vote. We saw him try to manipulate election officials to change the vote in particular states. We saw them stage counterfeit electors to try to use that as a pretext for getting the vice president to overthrow the election. Um, And then fundamentally, we saw uh, how January 6th, which is supposed to involve the peaceful counting of votes, became an opportunity not just for further partisan polarization and electoral mobilization, uh, but also an opportunity for violence, for strategic violence against our constitutional system. So uh, I would like to see us with constitutional means change that system, which has become so dangerous to us. But there are also reforms that we could um, conduct in the meantime to prevent the most immediate dangers. I just have a couple more questions for you. It's late at night. You've probably had a long day and there's a big week ahead. Do you know Mike Pence? No. You ever met him? No. Has he been asked to come and testify? And if not, why not? He seems like it was he was the target of this pressure. There's daylight, obviously, between he and the former president. He was an eyewitness to all of this firsthand. He would know whether there was illegal pressure. He would know the intent of the president and things he said. Well, I, I can't get into specific cases like that. And I'll just say that, you know, our investigation is not over yet. We are still investigating people. Uh, we're still talking to people, and so I just don't want to comment on specific cases. Yeah. Does that mean he might still come forward? Is there any discussion with his people? I, again, I mean, I, I can't really enter upon that with respect to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I, I do, you do think, think that if he were to testify that he w- it would be illuminating? I, you know, you never know what will be illuminating and what will not be, which is why I think we've uh, spoken to so many people. Um, and um, I, I just, uh, you know, I just can't tell you whatever is going on behind the scenes with respect to any particular witness at any level in the investigation.
finally, I just want to say this. Last week, my co-host and I, Emily Jane Fox, we talked about the shooting last week, the massacre in Texas. Of course, we talked about guns. But we also found ourselves, as so many people we know, feel that the American project is not working any longer, not functioning any longer. There's so much just cynicism. There's so much just people disheartened. And they they feel like the Biden administration is adrift. They don't feel represented by an opposition that can really come at this other faction that seems to be in our face every day with all kinds of madness, right? What do you say to those people? What do you say to people who just have completely lost hope and they look at these midterms coming up and they're just like, we're screwed. You know, that's how, that's how a lot of people feel. Yeah. Well, I've got a lot to say to those people because I talk to them all the time and I think you've successfully <laughs> captured a, a real sentiment in the country. The first thing um, I want to say is that pessimism, uh, cynicism, defeatism, fatalism are all a strategy. And I highly recommend everybody go read Christopher Wiley's book, about the 2016 election in Cambridge Analytica and Steve Bannon, where um, you know they developed a, a psychodemographic analysis of the American population. And basically, uh, the plan was to go and activate, I think it was around 4% of the American public that they felt mirrored the, uh, the psychological profile they were looking for, which was psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. If that sounds familiar, uh, they were basically looking for people who had the cluster of traits exhibited by Donald Trump. And then they set out to uh, activate those people, politicize those people. And what do you know? Pretty soon you've got uh, neo-fascists uh, marching in Charlottesville and we end up with January 6th and so on. But the other part of it was to deactivate and demoralize and demobilize everybody else, depress the hell out of the liberals. They knew there was no chance they were going to get liberal and progressive people to vote for Donald Trump, but they could uh, get them to be jaded and cynical about the whole system and turn them against it. So that's my prefatory remark. Understand you're falling for a strategy when you say you're burned out and you're hopeless. The second thing I want to say, I want to quote my father who used to say to us, when everything looks hopeless, you're the hope. So, you know, we need a little less breast beating and a little less whining and a little more organizing and a little more mobilizing by people all over the country um, and spread out, right? This is, you know, I, when I talk to young people who are uh, bummed out, I give them the advice. I give the little kids in soccer, don't bunch. Not everybody needs to go live in Brooklyn or Berkeley or whatever. Go back to wherever you're from, organize there, bring your 10 best friends with you to Georgia or North Carolina or Alaska or what have you. Not everybody needs to live in DuPont Circle, okay? Um, but the, what I really wanna say is that the, the perspective that you captured so well does not reflect accurately the scope of our history because um, we didn't begin with uh, Lincoln's vision of government of the people, by the people, for the people. Or if we did, it was latent in the values that Thomas Jefferson inscribed in the Declaration of Independence. But the reality was we began as a slave republic of white male property owners. And slavery was a system based on brutality and ownership of human beings. And so America has become a more perfect union 
by people struggling to realize the ideals that are in the Declaration of Independence of unalienable rights of the people, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, of the consent of the governed, of all men, and then later women being created equal. It's because people have struggled to make that real. So as despairing as you might feel these days, and I concede there's a lot to feel despairing about, we have a lot more resources and strength and power and freedom at our disposal than Bob Moses did and the African-American people who struggled for freedom and democracy in Mississippi in 1960 and 1961 and 62, and people were killed going down there to fight for the right to vote, like Schwerner and Cheney and Goodman. And we have more resources at our disposal right now to fight for democracy and freedom than the people of Ukraine, but we're doing everything we can to help them as they try to repel this fascist autocratic invasion by Vladimir Putin, who our own right-wing autocrats are cheering for, from Moscow to Mar-a-Lago and back again, and Marjorie Taylor Greene and the others who spout pro-Putin propaganda on the floor of the House of Representatives. So I want to tell people, yeah, you can feel a little bummed out, but you're only going to get disenchanted and fundamentally demobilized if you think that you've got something to do on your own. You're not on your own. This is a group enterprise. We're all fighting together, and you've got lots of historical heroes on our side fighting for democracy. And we are the heirs to those movements, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the LGBTQ movement, the human rights movement, the environmental movement, and look to the future. Because it's not just about saving America or saving democracy. It's about saving democracy all over the world not just in our own country, and it's about saving humanity because the autocrats and the dictators and the bullies and the despots and the tyrants are never going to deal with climate change. It's only going to be the strong democracies that are able to do that. So um, I want to tell people, don't despair. We are the clear majority in the country. Hillary beat him by 3 million votes. Joe Biden beat him by seven and a half million votes. The young people are registering Democratic on a more than two to one basis. The country's moving in our direction. So it's a struggle between the majority will and where democracy wants to go versus this bag of tricks they've got, like the voter suppression statutes, the gerrymandering of our districts, the filibuster, and so on. But I'm with, you know, John Dewey, uh, who said that, that you know, the only solution to the ills of democracy is more democracy. And what we're suffering from today is not political democracy, it's impediments and obstacles to it. So I, I concede to you it is a real struggle, but that's why we need everybody engaged and involved. And don't fall for the propaganda that tells you everything just sucks and let uh, you know, Jim Jordan and Donald Trump go and run our government for us. <laughs> a frightening thought. Indeed, and a motivation. Um, and I hope that in these hearings, as you know, one thing that I have enjoyed about, <laughs> it's a weird word to use, about these impeachments and these government hearings, is we're learning what, how our democracy works. And I hope that in explaining what happened on January 6, people come to see how their system is supposed to work. And that if they feel angry enough about what they hear and see, that they will be impassioned enough to do what you're saying. Organize, try to make a difference, 
try to push forward, try to overcome. And, you know, that's why I asked you at that one point, you know, do you think this will move the political needle? Will this energize people to look and say, hey, we can't let that happen again and that this is all bullshit? We don't know that. I hope, you know, uh, Congressman, you're you're a very passionate man, and the, your words are meaningful, and they, you know, they they straighten our spine. We need that spine straightened. Well, I appreciate that very much, and I appreciate, you know, what you're doing as a journalist and as a serious journalist. And uh, democracy is not just people in elective office and federal government; it's people in state and county and local, and it's not just people in government; it's people in the press, people in the universities. Um, it's every citizen uh, who stands up for democracy and freedom and reproductive freedom and the rights of the people. All of that is democracy. And that's what's going to save us. I, I don't think that uh, the autocrats and the dictators and the kleptocrats speak for the vast majority of the American people. And I'm not saying everybody's got to spend all of their time on this, but everybody should spend some of their time on this. Um, and make sure we're doing whatever we can to give other people hope. Well, Congressman, thank you so much for coming on the program this week. I know you're, uh, you are you got a lot going on. You're about to have a lot more going on. We're all going to be riveted to our televisions and our screens next week to find out what it is you guys have found out, what the story is, what is the narrative of January 6th, how can we better understand it, how might it change how we view our own democracy and what is urgently needed to happen consequently. Uh, so thank you very much for coming on. The pleasure is mine. And, and America's going to see what real bipartisanship looks like. It's not people yelling and screaming at each other. It's people working together. And that's our episode this week. I'd like to thank Congressman Jamie Raskin for coming on Inside the Hive this week. Thanks to my co-host, Emily Jane Fox in Abstentia. She'll be back next week. Thanks to producer Brett Fuchs and the good people at Cadence 13 who helped make this podcast happen. If you like what you're hearing, click subscribe. Come back week after week. We're going to have more exciting episodes like this, and we will catch you next week.